This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lends Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we see something new in cinemas or on streaming services and connect and compare it to older films by the same filmmaker or in the same genre. Sometimes we give some love to the work of an actor, lead, or supporting. My name's Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer and a critic. My blog is called Flaw in the Iris, and it can be found at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name is Stephen Cook, and I'm a multimedia journalist with the Chronicle Herald and the Saltwire Network here in Halifax. On this episode of Lends Me Your Ears, we are talking about the career of one Catherine Matilda Swinton. Matilda Swinton, I guess, to her friends and professionally. Uh, And uh, we are looking back at her career from its beginnings uh, way back in the late 80s and going all the way up to the present day with films like 3,000 Years of Longing and The French Dispatch. That's all coming up on Lends Me Your Ears. And we're back on Lends Me Your Ears, and welcome to this show looking at some of the career, because she's had many, many films under her belt over the past, uh, oh, 35 years, I think yeah. we're looking at. Yeah, uh, it's amazing. The films amazing. of Tilda Swinton, um, British-born actress to a Scottish father, an Australian mother, and uh, you know, classically trained, but uh, very rebellious in her choice of career uh, options and roles over the course of uh, of these many years, many films. Uh, she can do a commercial blockbuster. She can do an art house uh, obscurity. Uh, it doesn't really seem to matter. She seems to uh, enjoy the work and enjoy whatever challenges uh, the films bring to her, and she always rises to the occasion, at least as far as we've seen. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've long been admirer of Tilda Swinton, um, just for her versatility. Also, you know, uh, she was born on November 5th, 1960, so about a month from now, she'll turn 62, and it's astonishing to me how she plays roles of almost any age. She will play older older than her age, she'll play much younger than her age, but there's something wonderfully sort of eternal about her, which is, I guess, why she made such a convincing vampire in Only Lovers <laughs> Left Alive. Well, that's a movie we've already talked about of hers. Uh, and she actually showed up recently in the TV series, What We Do in the Shadows, as a vampire. So, you know, that's that shows she, she's got something with that particular, you know, uh, perspective, that particular mask. Um, but she's also really wonderful playing characters in, she plays dual role characters frequently in films. I mean, she was in Hail Caesar as the as sisters who hated each other. Uh, she was sisters again in Oksha, uh, and she played multiple characters in the remake of Suspiria. Now, in Toronto, when I went to TIFF uh, last month, I saw her in the new Joanna Hogg film, The Eternal Daughter, where she plays uh, both a mother and a daughter. Uh, now, that's not necessarily a film I love, but uh, I really appreciate her, I guess, her experimentation, the fact that she's willing to do all this different kind of stuff. And of course, in Orlando, which we're not going to talk about here, but it's uh, it was kind of, in a lot of ways, her breakout role after working with uh, Derek Jarman in many films, where 
She became uh, one character, became another partway through the film. I don't That's even right. want to say anything more about that because that would be a spoiler. But <laughs> it's a it's a terrific film uh, and one of her key performances for sure. Yeah, yeah, the Sally Potter films from '94. That was kind of or '95 somewhere in there. Anyway, it was kind of as you say, it was her big breakout. And then Hollywood beckoned slowly but surely. She started getting roles. She was in Danny Boyle's The Beach and in Cameron Crowe's Vanilla Sky, and then in Spike Jones's adaptation. She definitely has an knack for choosing great filmmakers uh, and of course so many terrific roles since uh, some of which we will be talking about today um, now people if we won't be going into depth though today but people should check out her two other films with Joanna Hogg the souvenir and the souvenir part two both are amazing where she plays the mother of the lead character and uh, she should also people should also seek out if they can now this is a hard film to find but memoria which i saw at finn last year that's the apicha chapong we're acetacool picture and i hope i'm pronouncing that right because that is a challenge that's the thai filmmaker uh and it isn't available to be streamed and it's I mean, it's I'm, it's it's even to see it in theaters is hard to and, find. And I days. think he has he said that it will only be shown in theaters that he, he's not ag- agreed to stream it or or release it. And maybe there'll be a physical media release at some point. But uh, at this point, he's not relented. To no, do that. I know. I mean, I kind of hope that it shows up like Criterion would be the perfect place for a for a film uh, a version of the film on physical media. But uh, yeah, so far it's being shown in art house theaters across North America. I'm not sure if it's still out there or what the future of it is. But anyway, she's terrific in that. But let's talk about a couple of films now uh, that uh, have recently come out. And I mentioned them off, off the top. 3,000 Years of Longing is directed by George Miller, written by Miller and his daughter, Augusta Gore, based on The Gin and the Nightingale's Eye by A.S. Byatt. It's a short work by Byatt. Um, and boy, is this a, a left turn from Miller's last feature, which was <laughs> Mad Max Fury Road. I guess he, with the success of that, he earned whatever, you know, a lot of opportunity to do whatever he wanted to do next. So he did this very strange little romantic, um, almost a two-hander uh, in some respects, about uh, uh, a woman, uh, Alethea Binney, played by Swinton, who is a narratologist. That's someone who's an expert in storytelling, I gather. Uh, she's happily single, who goes to a conference in Istanbul and does what anyone would do, which is purchase a gorgeous blown glass bottle at the bazaar. Uh, and using her electric toothbrush to pry it open, she releases a gin, played by Idris Elba. And... Uh, you know, she is a little skeptical of this whole like idea that he's offering her three wishes, knowing that every single story of a magical creature offering your heart's desire ends up being a cautionary tale. I mean, she's doing fine. What more does she need? So it becomes this weird conundrum where the djinn ends up telling the story of his own issues to her. And over the course of the most of the film, at least the first two thirds of it, we're just getting his story and, uh, and of the past and his adventures and his tragic, you know, his own having fallen in love with people, uh, human beings, and it having not ended well. Um, but it's a really an odd film. Tonally, it's an odd just concept. Um, I enjoyed a lot of it. I enjoyed all the eye candy on display, all the sets and props and costumes. Um, you know, I, I enjoyed the the way that Miller directed it. But it's kind of a story that I, I just I felt a little bit adrift at the end. Stephen, what did you make of 3,000 Years of Longing? I, I think I liked it a bit more than you. I know the reviews for it have been pretty mixed. Mm. Uh, and it's definitely the kind of film you'd 
rather see on a big screen, I think, because it is so visually gorgeous and lush, and that's a big part of the storytelling. It is this kind of a thousand and one Arabian Nights kind of uh, kind of thing where we're, we're shown these magical ancient kingdoms and the the towers of you know ancient kings and and all this kind of stuff. And and uh, you know, I was I was kind of swept up by all of that. And uh, you know, I I don't know quite how I felt about how the the relationship develops between Alethea and uh, and the Jinn overall. But uh, you know, I did appreciate. You know her coming into his world and him coming into hers, and uh, you know it was just it was just a nice visual feast. And then these two actors are so compelling that that uh, I was able to glide over some of the some of the lapses in the storytelling that we, that we get maybe a little further along in the film. Uh, and uh, you know, I mean, it's, I guess it's a cliche that we could watch these two read the phone book if need be, but uh, I. I, I I fell for the the visual uh, splendor of it all, and 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 the believability of uh, at least Alethea. The, the Jin takes a little more work to to find believable, but uh, but Idris Elba is very sympathetic in his portrayal of this uh, magical being who's nonetheless in the thrall of of humans who kind of use them at, at their whim. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I as you say, I like these actors a whole lot, um, and I like as I mentioned a lot of the sort of physical aspects of the film. Um, I thought that some of the CGI, you know, was was the sort of subtle sort that gives it a strange, wonderful hue. And then there's the distractingly hokey variety yes. of CGI. <laughs> it does, it, it, that's, the I guess, the trouble of farming it out to different uh, different uh, houses that you don't necessarily get a consistent uh, approach in it. And it doesn't all work. You're, no. right, you're right there. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I did find that, I guess, as you say, towards the end of the film where the third act signals a sudden change with one of the characters, and I didn't quite buy that. Um, and I, I felt like the last act felt a little bit rushed and compared to what went before. Uh, and I, I maybe just wanted the script to have a little more playfulness, uh, maybe some broader humor or camp to balance these sort of, there's a lot of darkness and sadness in it. Um, but I mean, in the end, I think it's hopeful and optimistic, you know, it, it comes around. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess, I guess I, uh, yeah, I, I guess it, it's probably one I'm going to want to see again, maybe get a better sense of it. Um, it, we are at the moment, I think, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, right now we're speaking at a time when I think it's out of cinemas, but it's yeah. we're in the gap between this, the theatrical release and it arriving on a streaming service. But, uh, but you know, I think I would still encourage people to check it out if they're curious. I know. I, I remember one review, I can't remember who it was, said that you know, it, they thought it would work better as an audio book or as a, as a radio play. But I, but I do feel like seeing it illustrated on the big screen is a big part of what makes it enjoyable. I think it would work in that other format, but I think you'd miss out on some of the, some of George Miller's vision for, for what he gets across here. Mm. You know, Miller has had a crazy career. I mean, aside from being (laughs) the, the, the guy who created Mad Max, the first three films, plus this incredible return uh, back in 2015, Mad Max Fury Road. He also directed the Witches of Eastwick, Lorenzo's Oil. Um, He was involved, I think in, what did he produce? Babe or Babe Two? Pig in the City? Like he's had a he's had like his hand in in children's entertainment as well as you know R-rated sci-fi dystopias. Uh, it's it's astonishing what the guy has done, and uh, and I, I guess I'll always watch what he does by virtue of just this body of work. It's incredible. And he's returning to Mad Max with Furiosa, so. 
It's another thing to look forward to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, I don't know if I've got anything else to say about uh, 3,000 Years of Longing. Yeah, it's, if you didn't see it in the theater, that's kind of a shame. Uh, but, uh, you know, don't let some of the some of the lukewarm reviews keep you off it. There's some great storytelling uh, along the way and some great uh, visual ideas. And, and, of course, its stars are fantastic. So. Yeah, yeah. And Tilda Swinton is is amazing in it. Um, and it's really hard to go wrong with her. Uh, her choices are so right on the money. It's rare that I've seen something with her in it that I haven't, If even if I have been sort of lukewarm on the film, uh, I've always liked what she's done with her performance. Now, she is part of the ensemble of The French Dispatch. This is from last year. It's Wes Anderson's strange film, another <laughs> odd one. Um, but I mean, if you know Wes Anderson, you sort of know what you're coming to he's we've we've talked about we devoted a whole episode to his work here in his tiny twee classics like you know moonrise kingdom and the life aquatic with steve zissou uh and the grand budapest hostel which is still my favorite i think of his films also starring tilda swinton um and uh this one it it I remember when I first saw it in theaters, it left me kind of cold. It meant not not cold, but just kind of distance from it. Like I liked, I had a good time watching it, but I didn't feel emotionally engaged by it. And then in May, I was on a flight to London and it was on. I was like, I'll watch it again. What the hell? And I watched it right through and I enjoyed it so much. Yeah. I had to watch it a second time. Like I, <laughs> what I did that with that trip or that part of the flight is I watched The French Dispatch twice. So uh, it just goes to show you that even someone who watches as many movies as us can change our mind about something. I was completely converted at the end of that third that third viewing. I was like, this is great. I went out and bought the screenplay. I was so fascinated by it. So anyway, um, Stephen, uh, <laughs> this this is a, I mean, it's it's a, a, an anthology film in some ways. It's a, a number of stories pulled together under the umbrella of, of this, uh, of a magazine uh, set in 1975, um, and it's about sort of an ode to long-form journalism uh, set in the fictional French city of Ennui-sur-Blasé, which is a great <laughs> a great name. Uh, and it's an American magazine's editorial offices are in this, this place. And uh, the magazine founder, editor-in-chief, Arthur Howitzer Jr., played by Mil- Bill Murray, of course he's going to be in one of... Anderson's films, uh, dies of a heart attack, and as per his wishes, the magazine is going to fold. So the movie is about the magazine's final issue stories as this anthology, these these four stories. Um, and, I mean, I can go through them all here, Stephen. I, I, <laughs> I mean, basically, I, if I can make a long story short, um, the first one is about the cycling reporter talking about Ennui's seedy underside across generations. The second one with Tilda Swinton, in an amazing set of fake teeth, which make her look a little bit like Joni Mitchell. And um, a pretty great wig. Yes, absolutely. Um, they, she tells the story of the concrete masterpiece. It's about a convicted murderer and artist, Moses Rosenthaler, played by Benicio del Toro, attracting great fame for his paintings from behind bars and his inspiration, a prison guard named Simone, played by Leah Sidhu. And it's also about his art world financier, Julian, played by Adrian Brody. Uh, Really love that story. Uh, The third one is uh, Frances McDormand as a middle-aged writer, Lucinda Kremitz, covering a student revolt uh, in something. It's called Revisions to a Manifesto. Uh, Timothy Chalamet is also in this. Uh, This is probably the one that I think is the 
the the weakest of the three. Um, it's charming enough, but it feels a little bit like there's something slightly condescending about this one. I I kind of hated the segment. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's because it was so. I watched it uh, so soon after the death of Jean Luc Godard, and I'd sort of been up to my eyeballs in all things Jean Luc. And then here comes this kind of homage slash parody of his work. And maybe it was just bad timing, but. Uh, you know, and I hate to dislike something with Frances McDormand in it, and she's fine in it. And Timothy Chalamet, just you know, it was just I just found him annoying, yeah, and that's cloying, fair. and you know, I and he was just doing. I mean, I, I feel bad. He was just doing what he was directed to do, and 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 be this kind of arch, kind of character with a bad mustache. Yeah, you know, kind of, kind of like the main character in Rushmore, sort of only as a as a kind of French philosophy student, but. Uh, but, yeah, somehow that, that one completely failed to work for me. Yeah, that's fair. Um, the, the final one is called The Private Dining Room of the Police Commissioner, and it's told by Roebuck Wright, or Jeffrey Wright, actually. Um, and it's about sort of the examination of cuisine that sprung from law enforcement, but it ends with a violent effort to rescue a kidnapped child and a mass poisoning and, uh, and then a whole animated segment. I mean, overall, I think there's a lot to admire in this film, but, I mean... I had to come around to it. It took me three screenings for me to quite get my head and heart around the film. So I'm not sure if that makes it a success or not, whether you, you, if it's the kind of movie you have to see that many times. But um, I really did enjoy so much about it and the little charm and witticisms and little details that are in the visual schemata of the film um, really come through with, with multiple views. And, uh, and I mean, you know, if you've got a, a cast like this, I mean, Elizabeth Moss, Christoph Waltz, Edward Norton, Willem Dafoe, and Shursa Ronan all appear and barely have a line of dialogue. <laughs> like, these are, these are actors that can carry their own films. So, I mean, that just shows you what Anderson can do and the kind of uh, appeal uh, of his films now. He's, he's kind of become one of those directors that everyone wants to work with. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, you, you look at, like, Bruce Willis in Moonrise Kingdom giving one of the few decent performances of the last decade of his career. Uh, and uh, and people, you know, they want to be part of something that that's, they, they, it, they feel like it's going to be a special experience and, and a film that people are going to remember. And uh, and that's, that's, that's pretty much always proven to be the case. I mean, it's an anthology film and in every, there's, I don't know that I've ever seen an anthology film where where at least one segment didn't suffer by comparison to its surrounding uh, storylines. And, uh, you know, so obviously there's going to be a weak one here. And for me, it's the, the student uh, rebellion uh, one. But, uh, but I think the, the, uh, the sum of the part, no, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Yeah. Something, mm-hmm. like, that. So, something like that. And I, I certainly enjoyed the, uh, the private dining room with the police commissioner. There, there's a really great, mix of of slapstick and wordplay and and visual humor and and all the jokes about the food and and Jeffrey Wright playing it dead serious and and getting away with it is uh is is also fantastic there's just so many elements of play and uh, so many actors that I'm 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 fond of uh uh just having a blast with it and and that part all works yeah no absolutely I I I it did take me a while to get my head around that and to come to it but I 100% agree um, and <laughs> I sometimes wonder you know we're we're immersed in new film and classic film on this podcast and just in our lives um, and I wonder sometimes about how many people are going to see something like the French Dispatch any Wes Anderson film for that matter and, and scratching their head at it because it's <laughs> so peculiar but I love that he gets to make 
his own movies his own way, you know? Yeah, I don't know how many people are seeing this particular film as their first Wes Anderson experience. I can't imagine there's there's too many. This has got to be somebody mm-hmm. out there. And that's I, I, w- I would say this is not the place to start if you're yeah. just kind of curious about his filmmaking. But uh, but it's uh, it, it, it you know it fits pretty well in in the grand scheme of things. I, I I really like Grand Budapest Hotel, which also had kind of I mean it was it had a singular setting, but also had kind of a multi time period anthology kind of feel about it, but held together much better thematically than than this does. And I I assume that hopefully his next film will be a little more cohesive, you know, maybe more straightforward story wise and uh, and. Uh, you know, or maybe it'll be a stop motion animated thing about dogs. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, Who he's, knows already, he's already done that one. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I think the Grand Budapest Hotel is his greatest film because it balances his sort of fascination with intricate art directed up the wazoo tableau with also a deeply felt satire of fascism. Um, and mm. fan, people are interested in exploring Tilda Swinton's work. Uh, they should absolutely see that film because she is amazing in it. As again, completely made up in a, you almost don't recognize her. She's playing someone I think in her eighties or nineties, and uh, yeah, amazing stuff. But uh, yeah, we're gonna watch uh, and talk more about uh, Swinton's career here on Lensmere Ears. We're gonna go back to the beginning, coming right up. <laughs> And welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears. And uh, today we're talking about Tilda Swinton and her career, which in film anyway, goes back to 1986, where she first appeared in films by Derek Jarman. He's the experimental filmmaker um, who, uh, you know, had a, had a career that uh, spanned a number of years. He passed away, sadly, in the mid-90s. But um, he was, you know basically a a giant in queer cinema. And I can understand why he, you know, is so important. I mean, he he really, you know, made films to his own beat, his own style. Uh, I have seen a few of them, and uh, I got to say that revisiting them for this... Uh, this this episode was a bit of a challenge for me. Um, I I appreciated sort of what it was he was doing, but I found them very difficult to engage with. I, I find the sort of hyper arty filmmaking where all the sets are look like theatrical stages, and there's a heavy reliance on voiceover monologues. It all just seems very '80s in a way that's self conscious, and and I'm gonna I'm, I'm just gonna say it, it's pre- <laughs> pretentious. Um, yeah, I found that stuff really hard to take, but it is fun to look back at a young Tilda Swinton. I mean, she hasn't changed so much. I mean, when she started in '86, she was what like 25, uh, and she was in the uh, Jarman's biopic of the painter Caravaggio, uh, but. Uh, we watched Edward II from 1991. So at this point, uh, Swinton had made a few films with Jarman. This is an adaptation of the play by Christopher Marlowe, and it weirdly mixes contemporary and medieval props and sets and costumes. So, you know, it does have things it wants to say about the way that I think uh, gay people are being treated by the government and the history in, of the UK. I, I mean, I got that from the film. It's about... Um, King Edward's passionate affair with Piers Gaveston, who is a, it's a relationship that scandalizes the kingdom and sets powerful forces against Edward and Gaveston, uh, exiles the king's lover who then returns, but eventually we get a lot of blood and torture and what have you. It's all very dramatic. Um, and, you know, <laughs> the members of the court are all in business suits and the soldiers in riot gear. Meanwhile, the king himself is wearing, you know, like a, 
um, the kind of tunic and the kind of uh, gear that you'd expect someone in medieval times would be wearing. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I really appreciated how, I guess, how unique all this is, but I, boy, did I find it a tough watch. I really enjoyed returning to this uh, film. I reviewed Edward the Second when it came out on the Laserdisc, <laughs> and I think I still have my copy of it on uh, in that format. And uh, I was also kind of fascinated with the work of Christopher Marlowe. Once upon a time, when I was, you know, he was kind of like the Rolling Stones to Shakespeare's Beatles, I guess. You know, he was like the 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 bad boy of Elizabethan theater, and and you know, you can tell why with a play like Edward the uh, Second. You know, with and and of course, you know. The direct, it depends on the director how to whether or not to make the overtones of of of, of gay love uh, in the play. You know whether to make it overt or covert, and, and it's certainly overt here, uh, as is uh, Jarman's watch want. But it's, I feel like it was kind of important in that way to kind of portray this couple and 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 the fight for gay rights and in a kind of weird historical uh, context. And and for me, it, it kind of worked. I it does feel very much of its time. It's not a style that you would see in a film nowadays or necessarily want to see in a film na- uh, nowadays. But but I, I feel at the time this film came out, it had a powerful message. And and uh, I think there was a ready audience for it. Uh, but it, you know, you're right. It is very theatrical. Um, you know, it, it feels like it could you know, just put up a couple of those sort of concrete backdrops and just stage the whole thing in one go yeah. on, on, on a stage. But mm. I feel there, there are some creative uh, visual ideas on display here, and I thought the, the the performances for the most part were pretty strong. And I think, it, as far as Jarman's films go, I think it's probably one of the more accessible and uh, and uh, sort of narratively cohesive uh, of his films. I didn't have any problems following the story or what happened. And if you read the history, uh, you know, the actual history of Edward II is pretty bonkers. <laughs> like what happened during that time with with the, you know his his wife turning against him, and then she double crosses. Her, her lover Mortimer, who we see here in the in the film, is the kind of leader of the military. And there's a there's a lot of uh, sort of very odd back and forth between the forces at, at play here. And uh, and I th- I thought uh, this did a pretty interesting job of sort of doing that modern update uh, of a of an ancient story and and bringing it to life. Yeah, I mean, I I see all that, and I can tell, I can obviously tell why this was an important film. Um, I guess the whole idea of more or less a film stage play is one of my least favorite of of genres out there. You know, with all the interiors and deep shadow and single-source lighting and uh, lots of makeup. It's very MTV of the 80s, and and it's, of course, it's a very unfashionable style now. But, I mean, there's a scene where Annie Lennox shows up singing Cole Porter's Every Time We Say (laughs) Goodbye, which is laughable. It's so ridiculous. And, I, you know, I get it, right? Cole Porter was closeted and and so that song is important has all sorts of resonance um but it's just it all just seems ridiculous to me in a way that i find it really hard to like get into um towards the end though uh swinton who's playing the queen isabel kills a man by biting into his throat like a vampire (laughs) that i like that i'm like blood running down her chin it totally presages her future as a cinematic vampire i love that part of the of the film well, Swinton is is probably the best thing in it uh, for sure. She gives a very measured, very controlled performance as this queen who, you know, at first just wants to be the queen to her king, but the king rebukes her in favor of his uh, his lover Gaveston, and and uh, so she decides to uh, do what she needs to do to assert her power, and 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 that, and that whole 
aspect of the story of, of the of the queen uh, asserting dominance with with Mortimer's help, uh, I, f- I found very powerful. And uh, it's it's if, if you're going to watch it, uh, her performance is certainly one of the uh, one of the assets of this film. Yeah, yeah, I would say that's probably true, but I'm not sure I would recommend unless you're curious about you know the history of queer cinema. I'm not sure I could recommend this to many people. <laughs> um, but let's move on to a movie I liked a lot more. I think maybe is something that uh, people would would more broad appeal, and that's Thumbsucker from 2005. This is a first film, uh, so, you know, she wasn't opposed to getting, uh, you know, meeting filmmakers who she thought she could connect with and, uh, and be in their, you know, opening gambits. Um, she, uh, Mike Mills directed this, and his first big movie, he's gone on to make The Great Beginners, which is a film I loved, and 20th Century Woman, which I also really enjoyed. More recently, he made uh, Come On, Come On, which I liked a lot less, but uh, I still think he's a he's a terrific American filmmaker. Here he tells the story of 17-year-old misfit Justin, played by Lou Taylor Pucci. Uh, he's sort of a typical teen in many ways. He's distracted and obsessed with a girl in his class. And he has a number of father figures. Vince Vaughn is a teacher in his class who cares about his future and wants him on the debate team. Then there's Keanu Reeves as a hippie orthodontist. (laughs) Um, And then his actual father, played by Vincent D'Onofrio, is a former football star who seems kind of impotent as he stares down middle age. Now his mother is played by Swinton. She's a registered nurse who seems obsessed with meeting a TV star, played by Benjamin Bratt. And she gets a job at the rehab clinic where he's being treated. Now, Justin's inability to focus on his classwork and his habit of sucking his thumb sends his teachers and parents to try medication, which takes him in a whole different direction. And later on, he tries self-medication with pot, which actually seems to do him the most good. Um, This is a rambling coming-of-age movie. Interesting things to say about the culture of therapy, of pharmaceutical solutions, and about the relationship between fathers and mothers and sons. Um, It kind of reminded me... Well, that I never want to be ever want to be a teenager again. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, in the age of uh, of Ritalin and over prescription and yeah, which and, I guess was happening in two thousand five as well. I mean, that's we're yes. talking like you know seventeen years ago now, but it's it feels pretty relevant in that regard. Yeah, I, you know, it's 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 easy to sympathize with uh, with Justin Cobb, the the, the Pucci character, and as he's kind of feeling a little bit at sea. Uh, in terms of uh, you know school and relationships and you know he, he he's with a girl who the only reason she's dating him because she says it won't hurt when she breaks off with yeah. him you know and that's got to that's got to be rough he's, he seems to have and you know the, again the distant father who uh, you know now he's working in a sporting goods store and he just uh, feels like a failure and feels like that's translating to his his uh, two young sons and you know it's a it's a tough spot to be in and then you know he finds. He finds uh, debating the debating club is just kind of becomes his source of power, wow. and uh, and is uh, you, know, you know using his logical functions, uh, but you know with the help of Ritalin and and it's it's for a first film I I found it's it's or for a first feature it's Mills have been doing music videos uh, but uh, you know it's, it seems pretty assured it it doesn't have that kind of uh, short attention span. Uh, music video kind of approach he really cares about these characters and even the ones that we only see fleeting i mean keanu reeves is is a you know he's got like maybe three scenes four scenes it's it's kind of a glorified cameo but you know he makes the most of it and he gets some some great dialogue some some uh 
some really interesting things to say, and I think that's the case. And 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 it's also a, a great Vince Vaughn performance, which is not something I, I'd always find myself saying. But he's very sympathetic and very insightful as the teacher, and and uh, it's great to see him in something like this. Yeah, I'm with you, especially on the Keanu Reeves, and this is a great role for Keanu. I think at this point in his career, you know, he was maybe it was a few years since the Matrix, and maybe I'm not sure how how hot he was in Hollywood, but. Uh, this film should remind everyone how good he can be in support when he's not playing a superhero or, or killer or whatever. He's, he's uh, you know, he's slightly spaced but deep thinking uh, with a shifting philosophies. I really, I really liked him in this. Um, there are ways in which the film I don't think has aged that well. Um, you know, there are aspects of the style that, I mean, I found it annoying then and I still think it's a little bit hackneyed indie movie tropes. There's a cheesy dream sequences, the wipes a friggin polyphont sponic spree <laughs> on the soundtrack yes, that, that does great after a while um i like there's elliot smith on the soundtrack too and i like him uh, and those songs actually sound pretty, still pretty great but there's a lot of other stuff here that is a little goofy um and i think that self-consciousness detracts from the story and the performances uh because it, they just don't need that particular stylistic flourish but that's what you got in 2005. Yeah, I think when we were watching it, you called it the, the garden stating of indie comedies. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, you know, Garden State is actually a movie I still can enjoy, but it does, it has cast a long and unfortunate shadow. And I guess, you know, as far as Tilda Swinton goes, I mean, she, I don't think there's as much of her in this film as, as there could have been, but but she is great as, uh, as the mom, Audrey, uh, doing a fairly convincing American accent. She's gotten pretty good at that <laughs> with the years. And, you know, as this kind of free spirited mom, who's been a little repressed by being, you know, in this marriage with this, uh, sort of depressed dad, who's, who's kind of keeping everybody down and doesn't, have, doesn't, doesn't really have the same kind of joie de vivre that she either once had, or she's tr- trying to hang on to. And, and, uh, she's, you really, you really sympathize with the character in, in that regard. And, and, uh, you know, she doesn't really lose that over the course of the film. She she manages to kind of hang on to that despite all the forces that are <laughs> tearing the family apart to some degree. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny when you think about her in this and then in, you know, two years later, she was in Michael Clayton, where she won Best Supporting Actress uh, for her role. It was mul- nominated for multiple Academy Awards, this film, written and directed by Tony Gilroy. And this is a character you do not have a lot of sympathy for, no. despite the fact that we see her in major pain and suffering through the film. Like when we when we first see her, we just she just does anxiety so well here. Um and uh, this is a film, I think, if I was put together a list of, of like the best thrillers of the 21st century, Michael Clayton would be on in the top 10. I think it's a spectacularly made film. Uh, uh, George Clooney plays Clayton. He's a fixer at a big New York law firm, deeply compromised, deeply depressed. Um, he, he's, uh, he's a little rough around the edges. He has a problem with gambling, with a son he doesn't see enough of because he works too much in a family who he doesn't see much of. You know, uh, he's got problems here and there. He's trying to, when we meet him, his firm is trying to manage this big case with a Monsanto-like conglomerate. It's trying to shake off farmers who say their chemicals gave them cancer and they're on a verge of a settlement. He's playing a high-stakes poker game, maybe something he shouldn't be doing, and he gets a call to help out a client who just became a hit-and-run driver. And he deals with the problem, 
but not with a lot of conviction. And then we flash back to four days earlier when one of the senior partners at the firm, Arthur, played by Tom Wilkinson, who is amazing in the film, has gone off his nut while in a deposition for the very case that's being settled, and Clayton has to fly out to Wisconsin again to fix this situation. Um, and what follows is a big corporate com corruption thriller that also ends up being intimate in its character moments. Um, it's about cover-ups and breakdowns and murder and paranoia. I mean, it, it really does follow that kind of um, 1970s paranoid thriller thing to a, a T, but it just has, it's very much for the 21st century. Um, now, Swinton, again, she plays... The a law, she uh, she's head counsel for the big company that's being repped by Clayton's firm, and uh, you can see that she has guilty knowledge, and she's just doing her damnedest to hold it all together for the few scenes that she's in, but she makes a terrific impression. Yeah, she. I mean, it's she's sort of sympathetic and evil at the same time <laughs> because she's. You know, she's, you know, when we first see her, she's in that toilet having a panic attack, mm -hmm. and. Uh, you know, she's doing what she thinks she needs to do to hang on to power, I guess, in her in her position as this new, uh, you know, executive director of the, of, of the company, and and she feels that uh, you know, in the name of corporate good, she has to do whatever you know by any means necessary to you know to keep the to keep uh, its name out of the the muck, out of the papers, and. And uh, you know, and eventually that leads to some uh, below the belt, not very legal activities that uh, I don't want to get too much into. But but uh, and and you know, she feels in, in the corporate culture of that time that it's justified for the the greater good of this company that employs thousands of people around the world and all that kind of jazz. That somehow uh, that you know sacrifices have to be made somewhere along the line, and. Uh, yeah, you know, it's it's it'd be a good double feature with the corporation, the documentary about mm -hmm. about uh, you know corporations that act like they're political entities. Yeah, or the parallax view. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> and which is certainly an, an inspiration uh, for this film. And uh, it's uh, you know Gilroy has already uh, demonstrated he can do suspense. I mean, he wrote the the Bourne uh, series of thrillers, uh, which is is really where he made his name in a big way. Before that, uh, well, he wrote. Uh, the screenplay for Dolores Claiborne, the Stephen King story that was shot here in Nova Scotia. And that's when he, around the time he developed, uh, he wanted to do something about a lawyer who was, uh, like he said, like a fixer, like a, a street level, um, you know, never sees a courtroom, but goes around solving problems that other lawyers don't want to, don't want to deal with. And, and he just sort of started with, from that gem of an idea and built it up into this criticism of, of, of corporate culture and uh, corporate malfeasance. And uh, it, it's just so effective. Uh, and, uh, you know, I gathered uh, in one interview, I heard uh, him say that uh, at one point Denzel Washington was going to be tagged to play Michael. Clayton. Oh, yeah. Was this the uh, WTF with Mark Maron? Yeah, but he said that he said that before. Okay. So, but he did. He does mention it that in the, the latest episode of WTF is uh, an interview, interview with Tony Gilroy where they talk at great length about Michael Clayton, even though ostensibly they're supposed to be talking about Andor, the new uh, Star Wars series that he's the showrunner for. <laughs> right. Because um, he wrote Rogue One, uh, you know, very fun Star Wars prequel. Um so, you know, I don't know if he's going to return to directing anytime soon. He hasn't directed a, a feature in 10 years. He did that Bourne movie. Was it The Bourne Supremacy, the one that didn't have Matt Damon in it? Oh, The Bourne Legacy. Bourne Legacy. Yeah, which the, is a movie I actually quite like. The Jeremy Renner one. Yeah. Uh, which I haven't seen. 
yeah. due to my anathema for Jeremy Renner, but maybe one of these days. It's, uh-huh. got, it's got a good supporting cast, at least. So maybe I'll, I, I did enjoy Hawkeye, so maybe I have to, I have to do a spin around on there. But, but, uh, but, you know, he is kind of missed in the feature film realm, but he's obviously doing quite well in television right now or streaming, uh, streaming storytelling with Andor. Yeah, yeah. He's, um, uh, I mean, I've always liked Gilroy. Not all of his films have worked. Uh, and I, and I, I would, I, but I would encourage most people to go and seek his work out. And this is the, the peak, I think. Um, I also really like Sidney Pollock in this. You know, the director uh, and actor who stars as the head of the law firm, the guy who basically tells the cold truth to Clayton. It's a similar to the guy he played in Eyes Wide Shut, I think. Um, but I've always liked Sidney Pollock when he decided to get in front of the camera rather than, I mean, I like his films as a filmmaker as well, but, uh, you know, he's one of the best parts of Tootsie. Um, yeah, and he's just, anyway, he's great here. And uh, we certainly missed, but uh, but yeah, there there's a, there's a good reason why Swinton won the Academy Award for this because she just gets both of her hands into this role in a way that it makes her so distinctive. And the final next to final scene where she does she performs with Clooney is is remarkable like it's just so good and uh, yeah, it just shows you what kind of range she's got where she can she can do anything. Yeah, the, the, there's a vulnerability that she shows right off the bat in her very first scene, but then you see, you know, the the exterior that she's been building on top of that in order to 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 stay at the top of the corporate game, and it's 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 an amazing performance to keep kind of both of those levels running at once. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of the Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food; it's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Welcome back to the third and final segment of Lens Me Your Ears on a special show devoted to the work of Tilda Swinton, one of our favorite actors and one who uh, is very prolific, thankfully. Uh, she's uh, usually in a couple of things every year, uh, either in small parts or interesting cameos or what have you. And uh, I'm kind of hoping that she uh, reteams at some point with uh, with one of her uh, one of her greatest collaborators, and that's the Italian filmmaker Luca Guadagnino. And I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, but uh, they, they... I think you're pretty close, actually. Uh, <laughs> is that Guadagnino? Guadagnino is like multiple consonants that uh, don't roll off the tongue so much. But um, uh, but uh, uh, Swinton and, and Guadagnino have, uh, have, have worked together very well on uh, three features, I think. Um, including one we haven't been able to see. Their first uh, collaboration was uh, 1999's The Protagonists. Yeah, hard to find. Yeah, I don't, I don't I've know. never seen a copy of it. It's not on streaming anywhere. It's uh, it's his first feature, uh, feature film. So clearly she is comfortable with jumping in, you know, head yeah. first with, uh, with new filmmakers, which is awesome. And, uh, and it was about a, a film crew, uh, an Italian film crew, making a documentary about a murder case. And uh, so it's a mix of... Uh, of Italian and English cast members. In fact, uh, Andrew Tiernan, who uh, played Gaveston in Edward II, the Derek Jarman film that Tilda Swinton is in that we talked about um, earlier in the show, uh, he appears uh, as a co-star in this film. So clearly they have a, a friendship and a working relationship going back 
to uh, to that film. So I, I really want to see it for for any and all of these reasons. However, we did watch for this show or rewatch because we'd both seen it before when it came out. I am love, a really big sweeping romantic epic almost about this kind of this Milan uh, industrial family and uh, the the changes that uh, new romance uh, brings to the family for good and for bad and it, it's a it's a pretty remarkable tale uh, Tilda Swinton uh, plays uh, plays plays it in Italian she speaks Italian through the film even though her character is actually Russian yeah, originally so who apparently married, who married she's, Italian she's apparently speaking Italian with a Russian accent <laughs> that someone had to figure out how that would sound i'm sure there are people you know who can do that but i mean that to me in terms also being convincing in the role like how wow like you know so amazing but uh, it's uh, yeah that that's that's an extra layer that you wouldn't expect, uh, and uh, of course uh, she is um, she's the, the matriarch of the 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 Recchi family. They are a Milan uh, textile uh, producing family. Uh, the grandfather started the the business uh, decades ago, and it's it's flourished in the in the fashion capital of of Italy. And uh, so of course they're extremely wealthy, <laughs> like ridiculously wealthy, uh, and uh, the the film kind of. Um, likes to bathe in in the family's opulence, uh, with in terms of the food and the clothes and the house and the, you know the the countryside and and um, so it's this very lush romantic setting uh, into which all hell breaks loose when, um, she you know she falls in love with her son's friend who's a a chef that her son is going into the restaurant business with and uh, they have a passionate affair that uh, you know can only uh, simmer beneath the surface for so long and things uh, come to a head in a very dramatic, very emotional and very powerful way that I don't even want to talk about because it is uh, the way it happens in the film is, is pretty much of a shock. I remember just being, a, just gasping at what happens in this film when I saw it in the theater uh, the first time around. But uh, you know, it, it the film uh, really does sweep you along with its portrayal of passion and it's uh it's uh, invoking of all the senses. And in, in the, there's a, Carson, uh, you loan me your DVD of this, and there's a very entertaining uh, commentary between the director and uh, the star. And at one point, they talk about how they wish they could have released this film in smell of it <laughs> because, because of the food and the, the, the fragrances and the outdoors and the, the flowers that are often shown in fuzzy close up and, and all this kind of thing. Like it, it really. You know, it really is a film that envelops you in, in, in so many ways. Oh, my gosh, yeah. This is a, a sensual film, and I do very much appreciate Guadagnino's sort of – that's what he brings across, that that real sense of sensual uh, passion. Uh, and, of course, I couldn't help also to think about, like, The Godfather, even though this isn't a gangster movie. It has that Italian family thing, the sprawling dynamic, mm. the traditions, the wonderful home, and all the deep colors, the wood and the gold. Um, but, yeah, it's it's about this, this, this love affair, this unexpected intergenerational forbidden love affair that happens. You know, Swinton, she's pushing 50 in this film, though she could be 35. It's just remarkable, hard to tell, yeah. you know, how old she is is but um you know it's she's she just uh she 
gets swept up in this this man. It's not that she seems unhappy in her life. She seems quite content in her family life. She's she's found a home here in this in this community and in this uh, this family. And uh, but you know she this happens and she can't she can't help herself. There's a moment actually, and and they talk about it in the commentary where. Emma, her character, eats the prawn dish that's been created by the younger chef, and she's transformed, and Swinton and Guaranino call it the Ratatouille moment, inspired (laughs) by by the Pixar film, where the food critic has a religious moment with food. Like, I love that. I love that. And they also talk about the vertigo hairstyle, and she goes to Nice, and she spots the chef in the street, and she's got this very severe blonde hair in a bun, and it's got the curl from Vertigo. Um, And I love that they're so aware of the sort of traditions in filmmaking, and it's all here to find if you look into it. You know, there's there's a real Hitchcock element, and there's there's also a Bertolucci homage, homage to the sheltering sky when she's looking out over the mountains and the camera finds finds the the view in the distance um uh you know and there's a lot of sex which i'm not <laughs> opposed to in, in cinema especially when it's done so tastefully as this yeah and it's the the ratatouille moment as you mentioned has kind of a counterpart where a dish lets a character know about what's been going on and it's just so that moment is so brilliantly shot and edited and it's it conveys so much without any dialogue at all and it's uh it's a, even watching it, uh, you know, a second or third time. It still seems uh, astonishing in its brilliance. Oh yeah, yeah. This is a movie I'll probably come back to every few years and just sort of luxuriate in it because it's that kind of movie. You sort of live in it. Uh, also, great seeing Marissa Berenson in this. Here's an actor who was quite a star in the '70s. She was on the Muppet Show, and uh, <laughs> and she she has a supporting role here. Um, also speaking Italian as everyone does, except in one key scene where. Uh, where uh, Swinton and the the actor playing her son speak uh, Russian, and uh, it's quite a shocking scene. But it just it, it's anyway. It's you were referencing it earlier, Stephen, and I won't give it away. No, but um, yeah, in the in the commentary, Swinton says, and but I'm paraphrasing here that c- cinema can do this: show people struggle for ways to communicate with one another. That's what it can do. People are inarticulate, she, she says, that, that sometimes she thinks that people are, that this is presumption that people are more articulate than they actually are. And in fact, they have a very hard time sharing their emotions and what they're feeling. And Anyway, yeah, uh, I Am Love is a wonderful film. That's from 2009. And uh, Swinton would uh, reteam with, with her filmmaker, Guadagnino, in a bigger splash in 2016, um, this is a film inspired by the film La Piscine, which is a French drama from 1969. It's available now on the Criterion channel. Um, and it's in some ways it's a little, you know, it's a little more risque. Of course, it's the late 60s and they could get away with things. It's also a little more politically problematic, I think, and maybe creepier. But um, it is, you can definitely see the structure similarity to a bigger splash. But what the bigger splash has is, um, is Swinton playing a rock star, Marianne Lane. She's sort of an aesthetic cross between Chrissy Hind and David Bowie. She's just had surgery on her voice, and the doctors insist that she shouldn't speak. So she and her photographer lover, Paul, played by Matthias Schonartz, retreat to an Italian island. And it's sort of a rocky outcrop halfway between Sicily and Tunisia where they can comfortably sunbathe in the nude at a private villa. But out of nowhere, Marianne's ex-lover, Harry, played by the incredible Ray Fiennes, shows up with 
a daughter in tow, a daughter until a year ago, I guess he didn't even know existed, named Penelope, played by Dakota Johnson. Now, this is a film that's a Grand Budapest Hotel reunion, and think about mm-hmm. how different they are in this film versus Grand Budapest Hotel, right? It's just It just shows you these are some of the best actors working. Um, oh, yeah, Fines is amazing. Yeah, yeah, he is incredible in this. So it, it's basically a heavily character-driven piece about Lush rock and roll veterans managing the damage that their lifestyle has wrought in the most comfortable surroundings imaginable. This landscape with the tan bodies on display and the, the human drama, you know, it forgives a lot of sins. I think, I think in the, at least in the first half of A Bigger Splash, it doesn't commit any. This is just amazing to watch. I found there's a moment where it kind of turns into a bit of a thriller in the last act, and I found myself not as in love with that as I was with the rest of the film. But uh, but boy, as you say, uh, Fines is, is doing some really great work. He's going big here, and it's it's <laughs> such a joy to see. Yes, I, even the, the, the clip of him dancing to Emotional Rescue is a popular gif on, <laughs> on Twitter and other social media. So you, 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 may, uh, you may get uh, deja vu while watching that scene, but it's a brilliant scene, and it's one of the factors that uh, convinced him to do the film that that he'd get to do some things that he hasn't been able to do in in films before and, and play a uh, you know rather than play a repressed reserved kind of uptight character like say in the in the forgiven which we saw yeah that's right only a couple of shows ago um, to play a completely opposite character to that or to his character in the uh, the, the English patient to, to play someone who's just come a complete extrovert and is completely in everybody's face and making people uncomfortable and and pushing buttons in in, in a huge way especially uh, the Schoenert's character, Paul, uh, he really wants to get under his skin and, and irritate him. And, and Paul doesn't want to give him any, any leeway at all in, in that regard. And there's a real battle of wills throughout this film that, uh, that there's a push and pull there, uh, you know, with it, especially with the daughter as, a, as an unexpected uh, bargaining chip that, that, uh, that really makes this a delight to watch because you just don't know where it's going mm-hmm. you know, the first time through. Yeah, absolutely. Schoenert's is good. I mean, he's kind of the go-to guy for moody, inarticulate, speaking of are inarticulate euro hunks uh, i mean he's in the danish girl and far from the madding yes. crowd you know but he's that's kind of his brand the brooding hunk unlike uh fines who will show us everything and if you know what i mean he goes some way to providing a little full frontal equity in movies these days <laughs> but uh but yeah um overall i mean i found this quite a pleasure um and if if in that last half hour there's a certain inevitability um I uh, I did I was a let down a little bit by the end, but uh, but overall I really enjoyed being in this film. The general air of trashy fun, and you know once again, uh, Swinton is just terrific. You just watch her all day. Yes, and I guess we can look forward to possibly an extended version of this film that's uh, I guess is premiering at a film festival in Europe. Uh, very shortly so yes and what's they calling an even bigger splash an even bigger splash yes <laughs> yeah let's hope that it finds its way onto a onto a, a physical media platform or something we can we can watch because uh, i want more i want more for sure And that wraps up this week's look at the work of Tilda Swinton here on Lens Me Your Ears. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you think of some films to track down, either, uh, say, on a streaming service, on Criterion Channel. Uh, Canopy had some some of the titles that we talked about. Of course, uh, your local library has, has a bunch of them as well. And uh, there's always something interesting in the film that features Tilda Swinton. Um, 
you, can't, you really can't go wrong with any of her performances. Thanks for tuning in. Um, my name is Stephen Cook, and you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. My name's Karsten Knox, and uh, I'm also on Twitter by the name of my blog, Flaw on the Iris. And of course, Lens Mirrors is on Twitter and on Facebook, too. And as always, we want to thank CKDU for airing this show every other Tuesday at 5 p.m. Atlantic Time. And for the folks at Village Soundcast Network who put the finishing touches on our voice tracks and make the show sound real good and uh, get it up on the podcast platforms. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 